Hello everyone, I'm here with David Falk here at Berkeley Law and Sports Society Conference. Thank you for your time, David. So one of the first things I wanted to ask you about was you seem to have a vision that players were going to be their own brands. First with Michael and it became Air Jordan, and then even 10 years later with Iverson and Reebok. And now you see almost every NBA player has their own unique brand, people like Giannis, and even marginal players have started building up their own brands. What do you see as the vision for players going forward for agents? How do you build those brands for players? And what, what kind of things do you do to create that? Well, it's an interesting question. I think that I think there are really very few players that truly have a brand. You know, if you look internationally, you say Pelé had a brand, Muhammad Ali had a brand, Michael Jordan has a brand. I think today every fringe player thinks he has a brand, and they spend way too much time worrying about developing their brands rather than developing their talent. I think the brand flows from being mostly flows from performance, but some of it, like as we know from a lot of these YouTube stars, some of it just flows from their personalities. And, and um, you know, I think the thing that made Michael so successful is, is that we were trying to manage his brand, but we weren't trying to create it. Like, I don't think you could create a brand. I think it's spurious culture. I think people see through it, it's, it's insincere. I think the things you do when you reach a certain level of success and popularity, you have the essence of a brand. Then you have to shape it, mold it, and project it. Um, but I think today, I mean, I got I got called from parents of an athlete who had never won a single game. Hmm. Uh, he, he was an individual sport. He never won a tournament. And they told me they wanted to hire me to manage his brand. And I told them, you don't have a brand. Hmm. Why don't you worry about winning a tournament first? And I think that because of the popularity of marketing, that I think people are putting too much of an emphasis on, on branding when they truly don't have a brand. I mean, the NBA, LeBron, you know, Kobe, they probably have the essence of a brand, but like combined, you know, and they're terrific players, people I really like and admire, like combined they sell about $500 million a year. Jordan sells $3 billion. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, there's only a limited number of brands, you know, that that truly stand out. I mean, if you look at soft drinks, every soft drink that's sold is a brand in theory, but there are very few Cokes and Pepsis, right? I mean, those are universal brands. And I think when a brand becomes, truly becomes a brand, it almost loses the uniqueness of its trademark. Like when you ask someone to photocopy something, you say Xerox it. Now that's a trademark. Right. When you have a headache, generic. you say take an aspirin. That was a trademark. Mm -hmm. When you tear a piece of paper, you say, you know, put some scotch tape on it. That's a trademark. And those are brands that became so universal mm -hmm. that the name of the brand became almost like a verb. You right. know, Xerox or, or a noun. Genericized. They exactly. It became generic. And that's, you know, that's the true test of a brand. I think there will come a day. I used to tease Michael about this when he was young. When a kid's going to buy a pair of brand Jordans and not know that he ever played basketball. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen, especially now you see on Twitter, it's become a meme almost, Jordan. And kids growing up now don't even know he played basketball. Correct. They know him as... And that's, and that's the power of the brand. In right. a way, that's in a way that's the ultimate success is that, is that what the foundation of what created the brand doesn't have to remain. Right. The brand's become so universally recognized. Mm. So I think we're here in Berkeley in the Silicon Valley, and you have a practical background in economics that kind of helped you build, like brought that to the negotiation table, that you knew how to build value for a player and knew how to project the markets. Now, how do you see 
the tech field influencing negotiations, sports, marketing, things like algorithms and analytics? I think, I think obviously there's been a tremendous emphasis on analytics and statistics, and I think that they're incredibly valuable. Uh, but I don't think that they provide the answers. I think they provide a guideline. As an, as an example, if you look in the world of financial management, I mean, everyone, every financial manager has six Bloomberg screens on his desk and they have trailing earnings and for three years, for five years. Why does Warren Buffett make so much money on us? Does he have better analytics? No, he's got better judgment of how to utilize the information. And I think, I think that, you know, you look at, you look, watch a football game, you see the coach on the sideline with a, you know, two or three pieces of paper with all the, tendencies and stuff and then he has to use that to make decisions that the computer doesn't we haven't gotten to the level of artificial intelligence where the computer can coach the game mm-hmm. the computer just gives you guidelines and you have to decide how do you utilize that information to make to make good decisions mm-hmm. thank you david i think one last question about the law, law school itself and that transition into becoming into an agent or in the sports field itself because i think a lot of people have an interest in sports and want to take that further but it's difficult to conceptualize how can I get to that point. So I think for you, it would be a two-pronged question. How were you able to leverage your contacts at Georgetown? Just the fact that you went to Georgetown Law School. I went to GW. GW. And then you had Patrick Ewing as a client, Iverson, Jeff Green, Roy Hibbert. You know, I, I, what happened was in the day, in, my, in the prime of my career, the major coaches like John Thompson, Georgetown, Coach K at Duke, Dean Smith at North Carolina, Bobby Knight at Indiana, Rick Pitino at Kentucky, easy for us to differentiate ourselves and when Juwan Howard who was the fifth pick of the draft in the last year before the wage scale mm-hmm. the end of nine years in the league he made 60 percent 70 percent more money than Grant Hill and Jason Kidd not hard to sell that mm-hmm. say do you want to who do you want to be Jason Kidd and Grant Hill are, are Hall of Fame players Juwan Howard made the all-star team once right but he made he made dramatically more money today when you have a weight scale, it homogenizes the talent of the negotiators at the front end, and the maximums homogenize the talent at the back end. Hmm. It's very hard to differentiate yourself, um, and so you know there's rampant violations of, of the rules going on, right. which is which is which is bad for the players. Not, not so much for the agents; it's bad for the players. Hmm. So, for law students who are currently in law school, would you recommend taking negotiation classes, or you kind of? I, I tell my students, I think that the agent field is the smallest slice of the sports pie. If I was in law school today and I wanted to be in sports, I'd probably want to be in digital marketing or international hmm. you know, international events. Uh, I'd want to be in something that's growing. The agent field is overpopulated. It's, it's, uh, it's hyper-competitive. Fee, fee structures are coming down because of the competition. Um, I, I don't think, I'm not saying it's not a field that's going to go away, but it's because it's a very productive future career for someone who's really bright. I, I, I would pick something. I'd pick something with a more technological side to it, mm. more international side to it, intellectual property, content. I, that's where that's where it's going. I think that's music to our ears at Berkeley with such an international influence and the tech influence. And it seems like it's more important to just cultivate the skills that give you something to stand Absolutely. out. Because then you could be in a lot of different industries. I think mm. if you know, if you're a great marketer, you could be in any industry. You could mm. be in sports, you could be in music, entertainment, you could be in consumer products, you could be in anything. 
you know, I never took a course of marketing and how to learn how to market, you know, as a lawyer, which is something I never, I never thought I'd have to do. Last question. I think a lot of our listeners have been asking about your relationship with Michael Jordan and about that initial negotiation with Nike. And it seemed at first that he wore, he wore Converse, I believe, in North Carolina. He wanted to go with Adidas. He wanted to go with Adidas. So could you take us through that negotiation process at all? Well, I think it's a question of opportunity. I, I mean, I listened to my client and I thought that the best opportunity for him was with Nike because they were very small, entrepreneurial. They were basically a startup back then. We represented the owner of Adidas. Counsel for the MLB Players Association. So, Dave, I grew up on baseball like a lot of Americans, partly because I was a stat nerd, so I knew all the batting averages and things like that. But there's been a growing trend that minorities, especially in America, have lost interest in baseball, and it seems that part of that is due to the, the minor league system and it's not immediate success right away. Uh, what can the MLB Players Association do to, I guess, market the sport a little bit better so it attracts young athletes to choose? baseball over maybe basketball or football? Well, we're doing lots of things. I think you've identified a big problem, which is that the number of, if you look at the top, the number of African-American players in Major League Baseball continues to decline. But, um, you know, our leadership, which includes a lot of prominent African-American players or retired players like Tony Clark and Dave Winfield, um, we have Omar Minaya from the general manager side. Um, they're devoting a lot of resources and attention to try to build the game among um, African-American kids. Um, so we're trying to sponsor scholarships so that the kids can get into the system, uh, like you know the perfect game and um, USA Baseball and all those things that are basically require a ton of money to get involved. We're also um, having a program where we have retired players serve as coaches and mentors to um, to kids and to leagues. So um, we're we're um, very aware of the problem and trying to to, to address it. Now you're right, though, that part of it is that um, there's a lot more kind of or it's perceived as instant gratification. Mm-hmm. Going into basketball and football, you 
go to high school, you go to college, and then you go to the pros. And baseball is typically not the way. Is there an attempt to unionize at the minor league level? Because it seems like there's a notion in baseball you have to ride the bus and pay your dues before yeah. that payoff. Yeah. Is, is there a movement? There's, um, well, I don't know if there's a movement. There's certainly interest, and um, you can see that in the um, minor league wage suit, which is going on, um, which is actually filed here in California. But it's a nationwide suit alleging that um, a lot of the minor league teams, which are in large part controlled by the major league teams, um, aren't paying either minimum wage or overtime. And that suit's kind of going back and forth. There's a lot of legal wrangling on it, but you can see MLB is um, fighting it pretty hard. Um, so uh, does the union drive come out of that? I don't know. It, it, it might, and you know. Personally speaking, I think everyone should belong to a union, so I'm all for it. Mm. So, as far as legal issues facing the union, I know there's a lot of uh, a lot of adulation of the MLB Players Association because there's no salary cap and it seems right. very player friendly. But what are some of the legal issues that are facing the union that you guys worry about on a day-to-day -day basis? Maybe mm -hmm. gambling is one issue mm -hmm. that you mentioned. We haven't panel. had it. Yeah, yeah gambling is kind of an issue we're looking at. We haven't had a big problem as far as players. You know, getting in trouble or disciplined or anything for gambling, but the influence of gambling is clearly growing. But we spend a lot of our time on the bread and butter issues of, um, you know, individual cases where players aren't given their meal allowance or their hotel allowance um, when they're called up. Um, a lot of injury cases where players are um, put, sent down to the minor leagues rather than put on the disabled list where they should be put. Um, all kinds of contractual violations that we um, we allege a lot of we spend a lot of time negotiating with baseball about rules mm -hmm. um, because they have to go through us since rules are kind of the terms and conditions of employment so you've seen just recently the catcher collision rule the second mm -hmm. base collision rule the timers replay all of that had to go through us is there a difficulty in practicing that effective advocacy when there's people from so many different countries and different social norms and desires that you have to represent? And how do you navigate sure. that complexity? Um, well, one way is by diversifying our staff. So um, we have a Spanish-speaking lawyer. We have one, two, three, four, five Spanish-speaking reps, um, three of whom are retired players. Um, we have um, connections with uh, Japanese agents who represent players and Korean agents. Um, so, uh, yeah, we have to be very conscious of that. And, you know, there are members, too, every bit as much as, as American hmm. members. So. And so, final question about, mm -hmm. for law students who are listening to this podcast, seeking advice at how do I get into the sports field? Mm -hmm. It seems that for you, mm -hmm. it almost became, it was a result of your advocacy for labor unions in the right, past right. and your friendships from Harvard mm -hmm. Law. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give mm -hmm. to students currently in law school? What kind of skills should they cultivate or mm -hmm. how should they? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I always say as a joke a little bit to start is you should be nice to the people you go to law school with mm -hmm. because that's how I got into sports was a friend of mine from law school recruited me. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, what we look at when we hire people, and this may be different on the sports management side, but as far as unions go, we look at people who have some background in labor law and in unions and have shown not only that they know how to represent workers, because that's what we do, mm. but also that they believe in it. Okay. So, so that's, you know, whatever opportunities you can get, you know, work at the labor board, 
work for a firm that does this, work for an agent, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, show your interest, or go work for a regular union, mm-hmm. you know. Just to practice the skills and then... Sure, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, well, thank you, Dave. We'll You're sign off welcome. here from the Berkeley Law and Society Sports Conference. Thank you very much for your time. You're very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks. I'm here with Brett Hirsch, legal counsel for GoPro. And Brett, it's been amazing to see how GoPro has evolved. Starting off as seemingly only a hardware company focusing on cameras has now evolved into a major, major influence in the content and media game. How do you see GoPro continuing to evolve and what do you see as the vision for the product, especially relating to legal issues and social media? How do you see GoPro going forward? Yeah, so GoPro, I think, was at the forefront of the social media the boom, and it's kind of plays it. It's in a special place just because it not only is a brand that's influential on social media, but the product that we create itself is what people use to capture and share their to the world. So it, it sits in this really kind of middle ground where we can play both sides of this. And so there's a huge push, uh, especially from us, to continue to make it as easy as possible for people to go out and live a big life and to be in the moment and to be able to capture then share that back with the world. And then as a brand to try to get exposure through sponsorships and through various ways we advertise to get the brand out there and to continue to grow it and make sure that there's awareness. And so we sit in like this really awesome kind of spot between the two where we get to influence both sides and the legal side behind it is just incredibly um, engaging dynamic work where we get to really kind of be the first in the space to do some of these different types of deals that we've done in the sponsorship realm and influence how the brand grows and continues to gain followers and uh, momentum that's really interesting so what would be some of the important legal issues that come with something like gopro which is almost user-generated content and you have to deal with platforms you have to deal with athletes so what are some of the main legal issues that you face working for gopro yeah so i handle all the contracts for all that so we sponsor athletes which all have sponsorship contract with us we have deals with all those different platforms that we're putting our content so on the devices like roku and uh, PlayStation and Xbox, we have uh, platforms there, and those all have distribution deals. So we, we really get to, uh, you know, anytime you see GoPro's name out there doing a new uh, partnership or a new place that our content's being distributed or a new athlete we're sponsoring, on the back end behind that, there's a contract, and we get to work on. I get to work on those contracts and handle those negotiations and make sure that the what the business team intends to do for a particular partnership or deal is actually is accurately reflected on the paperwork and back end. So for, for law students and who are listening to this podcast and excited about the uh, a potential to work in sports and media and entertainment, what kind of advice would you give to those students? What kind of skills do you think you lean on the most that you learned in law school or that you wish you could have learned in law school? Yeah, so I think for those interested in going into the sports world to really take a look at the sports like uh, sponsorship landscape and so many people when they're thinking about working in sports they think immediately to the leagues and to the teams and that's what comes to mind first but there's so many more different organizations and ways to be involved in the sports world besides that and I think that's where there's a lot of opportunities so take a look at companies that are uh, sponsoring lots of different events like every like think about companies like Visa and Budweiser and McDonald's like they're prevalent and Red Bull and Go 
GoPro that are prevalent in so many different avenues in sports. And th what's the difference between what that person is doing uh, on their sponsorship contract uh, in negotiating for their brand to sponsor versus what somebody from the Niners or the A's is doing in negotiating their sponsorship? So it's the same deals just on the other side. So I think that's a really good spot for people who are interested in this field to look where maybe not everyone else is looking. And then as far as like skills that you learned in law school, it's really the problem solving and critical thinking. Um, it, it's that's stressed heavily in law school and it, that is that's the skill that I think translates the most from law school like what you learn in some of those in the, the cases that you learn in law school that doesn't apply as much but the the problem thinking and the, the or the problem solving and that practical like uh, issue spotting that's what applies as you go forward into your careers and those are the types of skills that really were important that you learned while you were in law school Thank you for your time, Brett, and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks, Signing off. out here from the Berkeley Law and Sports Society Conference.